Can you believe that we only have three chapels left? Yeah, there we go. Yeah, Lucas is clapping. I don't know if that's good or bad. Who knows? It's, it's been a joy this semester to get to walk through the Joseph narrative as a campus. And the title, we haven't said it in a while, but the title of the series was Joseph, Dream to Reality and the Gap Between. And if we go all the way back to January, I invited you to dream. Right? We, we began to dream, and I asked, what, what do you want? What do you long for? What are your hopes? What are your desires? What are your dreams? Because Joseph had a dream. If we remember that his family would bow down. And he so wanted it to happen that he told his family right away. He walked into it just a a tad too early. And that led to violence and slavery and condemnation and prison. And then this kind of back and forth game with this family going back to Canaan and back to Egypt and back to Canaan. And back again, that just revealed the humanity of everyone involved. And then over the last couple of weeks, we've seen how Joseph's past has begun to form deep roots in God and form his character to be able to steward the dream well as it's come to pass in the present. We saw how violence done against him formed forgiveness. And then how that forgiveness ended up forming blessing. Right? We saw how Joseph's dream has, has moved from his own glorification to be about the world's salvation in this time of famine. And this is the direction that I hope you as individuals and us as a campus community are moving. That our dreams and desires and wants are longing and longings are moving from self-focused to being others-focused. That it's moving from being our own will to God's will. That's one of the goals of this series is that our dreams and our deepest desires and wants are transformed from the one that you want to the one that the world needs. And maybe what you'll discover along the way is as Frederick Buechner puts it, the place where God calls you, I may even say your dream, is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And that's the hope. That's the desire. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 47, and we'll continue this story. And our text this morning has two crises in it. And so let's listen to what verses 13 and 14 say. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. 
And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So the scene starts and there's no food in the land. The famine was very severe and the people in Canaan and in the people of Egypt languished because of the famine. The people were very hungry and there needed to be action. This was a crisis that had many lives at stake. And Joseph responded in three stages. The first we just read in verse 14, all of the grain that Joseph had stored previously from the years of plenty, the Egyptians were now going and giving money to get that grain. Right? and Because they needed food. But then the, that food ran out. They say this in verse 16. They say, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? So then Joseph says, okay, give me your herds and flocks and livestock. And in return, I will give you more food. And so they did this. They, they gave them all of their livestock. And again the food runs out. And listen to what the Egyptians say in verses 18 and 19. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Their food runs out. They have nothing left to give, so they go to Joseph and say, we give you our land and we give you our bodies. The word bodies can also be translated corpses. They were so frail. They were so on the verge of death. They said, we will give you our corpses. This is where we're at. The crisis is growing. And so the Egyptians exchange their land and their own bodies for grain, and they become royal slaves. The crisis is handled. The people have food and seed to eat and grow crop. And they're even pleased. They even thank Joseph. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But then there's a second crisis in our text. Verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. And Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. 
Jacob is nearing the end of his life. And he approaches Joseph to make sure that he will be buried in the land that God had given him and his fathers. He doesn't want to be buried in a foreign land and in Egypt. Jacob's chief concern in this moment are the covenant promises of God. And Joseph swears to bring his dad back to Canaan despite the difficulty of the assignment and the need to gain Pharaoh's approval. And once again, the crisis is handled. Jacob can die in peace knowing that he will return to the land God had promised him and his family. So we have two crises in our text. Have you experienced a crisis lately? Mark Sayers, an author and pastor, says and writes this. He says, crisis is a great revealer. Sure, crisis is a great revealer. What do these two crises reveal about Joseph? According to our text, it seems that Joseph responds swiftly. He responds confidently. He responds directly, and he doesn't appear to be shocked or overwhelmed or confused or scared. Joseph does not delay in providing relief. And according to our text, there's no hint that there was a better way for Joseph to have handled it. Joseph handles it just right, and the people are pleased. Joseph was a non-anxious presence for a people and world that desperately needed one. This term, non-anxious presence, was coined by Edwin Friedman, a Jewish rabbi and family therapist. And this is how he defines a non-anxious presence. An individual who provides a calm, cool, focused, and collected environment that empowers others to be relaxed. Don't you long to be a person like that? Just that last line, that empowers others to be relaxed. Yeah. That empowers others to be relaxed. Right? Don't, those things don't seem to go in. Okay, how do we empower someone? You think that they mean, that means they move, they drive, they go, but empowers others to be relaxed. Our world needs people like that. What does crisis reveal about you? What has crisis revealed in you? whether that's an individual crisis that's impacted your own life and your own experience, or a crisis that's impacted your family or friend group, or one that's impacted the entire world. What does crisis reveal about you? What does crisis reveal in you? Let's just take our Western culture as a whole for just a moment. If we look at just the past two years of all of the different crises that we faced, I think it's revealed how anxious and angry we are. From the 2020 election to the COVID pandemic 
and the war in the Ukraine and, and everything in between, our collective response has been anxious and has been angry. And I don't think I need to prove that to you. We just need to log on to, to social media or watch the news or when you go home for summer, just bring up any of these topics to your parents or to your family and see what happens. Where does this anger and anxiety come from? I think we become angry when we don't get what we want and anxious when we're fearful we won't get what we want. Let me say that again. We become angry when we don't get what we want and anxious when we are fearful we won't get what we want. Is that you? Can you relate? Have you been angry recently? What about anxious? Let's, let's zoom in. Let's focus on anxiety. What are you anxious about right now? What are you afraid of not getting? Is it a job or career? Money? A certain grade to close out the semester? A certain relationship with a friend or significant other? Honor, respect, influence, a title. Or as the midterm elections come up, a certain political candidate in the coming months. Can I tell you what I'm afraid of not getting? I'm afraid that I will not be significant or have influence. Because I'm driven by significance far more than is good for me. And as a result, I keep, I keep people at a distance. I keep people at a distance and I keep God at a distance because here's the lie I believe. If they knew the real me, I would never have significance and influence. If I let people in and was vulnerable and weak with all the stuff I have, I would never be significant or it would get taken away. Significance is my God, and the drive for it is at odds with my soul and hurts those closest to me. And this is what anxiety reveals. Anxiety reveals what it is we want and what it is we worship. Anxiety reveals to us our gods. And our gods are too often ourselves. Our false selves, the, the, the people we think we should be or ought to be. And, and let me say this. Generation Z, which is most of you in this room, you are more driven than many other gen generations. You have a drive to succeed and make a difference in this world. So students, your generation is one that dreams and that longs and that desires. And it's one of the things that excites me most about the church of the present and the church of the future, because you wanna be a part and you wanna make a difference. You are empowered. But drive can also be bad because you feel the pressure to be successful or significant and even perfect. And rather than empowered, you feel anxious, afraid to fail, and uncertain about the future. 
And this drive too often produces anxiety that leads to paralyzing shame, or it produces pressure that leads to ambitious pride. And whatever side you fall on, the focus is the same. It's self. It's me. It's you. And so our anxiety problem is a self-focus problem. How do we combat this? What is one of the antidotes to anxiety? How did Joseph become a non-anxious presence? He blessed people. The violence done against him in his past formed forgiveness toward his brothers in the present. And then this forgiveness freed him to bless his family with land and possessions. And in our text this morning, Joseph blesses once again. And let me just just give a brief word on, on this word blessing. The Hebrew word translated bless is barak. And barak literally means to kneel or to praise. It's to kneel in reverence before God to receive his blessing. And this word blessing, it's it's really to receive God's favor and presence. That's what it means to receive God's blessing. And then it's to raise our head in response to that. In praise, it's, it's what David does. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless the Lord. And it's what the book of Genesis shows us. God mediates his blessing to humanity through humanity. It's Genesis 1.28. God blessed Adam and Eve. Or God gave Adam and Eve his favor and presence. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing. That's what it means to bear God's image, to give his favor and presence that he's given to you to other people. Joseph blessed people. And you may be thinking, how does blessing come through in our text this morning? I mean, the Egyptians became slaves to Pharaoh. So really what Joseph is doing is exploiting the poor, weak, and destitute. It's the same story in our world today, isn't it? And it's a fair question and thought. But we can't read this story with Western eyes. Because first of all, this story is not about big or small government. And second, the people of Egypt were not slaves in the sense that the United States has known slavery. Gordon Winham, a commentator, writes this, In ancient society, slavery was the accepted way of bailing out the destitute, and under a benevolent master could be quite a comfortable status. We saw this with Joseph earlier, didn't we? He was a slave under Potiphar. It was quite comfortable didn't happen all of the time. And and then even later in Leviticus 25, this very thing becomes law to help those most vulnerable. And so what Joseph did to the Egyptians was viewed as a great act of charity, of salvation, of blessing. And the Egyptians even said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. 
What about the second crisis in our text? Look at verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. What a contrast between the plight of the Egyptians and the prosperity of the Israelites. Joseph blessed his family by bringing them to Egypt, and he gave them the best land. And now before our very eyes, what God spoke to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. What God spoke to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. What God spoke to Abraham, what God spoke to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, we will make you into a great nation is happening before our very eyes. So what's the antidote to anxiety. How do we become a non-anxious presence for a world that desperately needs one? We bless. We give people God's favor and presence. We shift our eyes from ourselves to others because blessing forms a non-anxious presence. It's what Jesus teaches in Matthew 6 when he tells us to consider the lilies of the field and the sparrows of the air. He teaches it in Matthew 10 when he says to gain your life, you must lose it. And as we do this, we will no longer be fearful of what we won't get. Rather, we will be an individual who provides a calm, cool, focused environment that empowers others to be relaxed. You know why? Because we have God's favor and presence. Did you know that? You, you have God's favor and presence. As his son, as his daughter, you have his blessing. And as we trust in that, and as we live out of a place from that, and we receive that from God, it'll lift up our countenance and we'll be able to extend that to others. We'll be able to bless others. We'll be able to extend favor and presence and peace and kindness and patience and gentleness and love. We will be able to extend the fruits of the Spirit and we will be a non-anxious presence because our dreams and desires have been transformed from what we want to what the world needs. And as we close, it it might be helpful to, to clarify something. The anxiety that I'm talking about this morning is the low-level anxiety that we all face on a daily basis that occasionally leads to high-level anxiety. I am not primarily talking about constant, high-level anxiety that just seems like you can't shake it. Yes, blessing and becoming less self-focused will help that, but if you have constant high-level anxiety... Seeking medical professionals to help treat and support it is vital as well. That's an antidote to anxiety also. So here's a practice for the final three weeks of the semester. Bless others more than you focus on yourself. And I get it. It's the busiest, most overwhelming, most anxiety-inducing part of the semester that's not lost on me. Bless others more than focus on yourself. 
And if you do this, here's what I believe. Your daily action of blessing others leads to a natural flow. As we practice receiving from God and blessing others in our daily lives, it will become a natural response and a part of who we are in all circumstances. And our deep gladness will meet the world's deep hunger. Our dream will become about other people and God's will. And when crisis comes, a non-anxious presence will be revealed. And we want to give just a brief moment of space for that this morning. If you need to go, you're, you're welcome to, but we're just going to take a minute or two. Yeah. Maybe you're in your place and you just need to receive God's blessing. You need to open your hands and say, God, give me your favor. Give me your presence. I long for it. Do that. Ask. Or maybe the Holy Spirit is going to stir up a person in your mind to bless tomorrow, this week. Or a professor, we, they need it too. And maybe you just ask the Holy Spirit to stir, stir something up for who, you to bless as we close this semester. So just take some t- time to receive. See what the Holy Spirit stirs. God, will you give us an extra measure of your favor and presence? May it be tangible as we go into the final weeks of the semester. We need it. We need you. And God, may that blessing stir us up, lift our head up to see who we need to extend that to in our daily lives, in our walks, to our classes, in our rooms, in our homes. 
our neighbors. God, we pray that you would form a non-anxious presence in us and that we would empower people to be relaxed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll rise and, and receive this blessing as we leave. In the final days of the semester, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.